All right, let's go to Second Peter. You know what? Everybody that used the rain and the time change as an excuse is going to miss the conclusion. I know. 18 verses we're going to go through today. Can you? Nobody believes me. <laughs> I promise I'm going to try. We're going to try and make through 18 verses. And then I don't know what we'll do. <laughs> we got, we're through with Second Peter. Uh, I'm excited. If, uh, who's... Who's going to leave and go somewhere for, well, well okay, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, who's going home for spring break? Okay, homies, raise your hand. Okay. Uh, who's going to go overseas? Anybody overseas? Anybody out of the States? No? Okay. Anybody out of Texas? Lloyd, Kelsey, okay, a few of those. Okay, Cool. Maybe. There's a maybe over there. You probably ought to know by now what your <laughs> plan is. I don't know. Maybe not. Okay. Um, so for those of you that are going to be here next Sunday, Peyton's going to be sharing uh, just from his heart. Uh, we'll be finishing Second Peter uh, this week. So, all right, chapter 3. Now, where we, where we ended uh, in chapter 2 was it was a really, chapter 2 was a really, really, really detailed account of the false prophet and the false teacher, Right? Um, all of chapter two uh, was it, it was able to happen because of what he uh, because of what he established in chapter one. If you remember the beginning uh, of Second Peter in chapter one, he establishes our foundation uh, of faith. Uh, he makes some pretty heavy statements. He says that our, our his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He establishes um, our life uh, being built on Jesus. Um, and he, he gives us a foundation that we absolutely have to have in order to begin the discussion on false prophets and false teachers. Because one of the main components of the false prophet, uh, of the false teacher, is that they will deny Jesus, right? That it'll be, it'll sound, there's parts of it that'll sound right and sound good because the name of Jesus will be, uh, will be in there. But it'll be a distortion of the Messiah. It'll be a distortion of who Jesus really is. Um, and, uh, and so we have to be aware of who Jesus is. One of the things that he does uh, is he says that, that uh, he says, we didn't, we didn't just come up to you and begin to tell you about this Jesus as a cleverly devised myth, but he said we were eyewitnesses and more important than our eyewitness account. Uh, and, and, and think about the weight of that. I mean, they, they were there. They saw um, the things that Jesus did. Uh, they met with him. Uh, after he was resurrected, I mean, these guys had uh, as close of a touch as you could have um, to uh, Jesus living on the earth. And he said, that is important, but even of greater importance than this is the word of the prophets, which Jesus has fulfilled. So we've got to, we build our case on, on two places. Number one, the eyewitness, but number two, that Jesus did everything that God said he was going to do. And we talked about the probability of one man doing those things. Just uh, was was phenomenal statistics of him just fulfilling eight prophecies, um, and he f- has fulfilled over three hundred, and there uh, are more uh, more to come. And so uh, we build our case on the person of Jesus, and the false prophet seeks to distort uh, the person of Jesus. The other thing that he says, which we talked about being uh, being somewhat disturbing multiple times, he talks about the false prophet and the false teacher being where uh, in terms of of, of the church. Among us, right? Did that just kind of make anybody... I mean, I don't know. That just... 
That's a tough thing to swallow. And, and the false prophet, the false teacher existed um, in the day that this letter was written. And, and in, even in the Old Testament, we see this many, many, many times. Um, and Peter says it was true then, it's true now, that they will be among you. But we have to be careful uh, because that, that word that they could be among us can, can really kind of set about a paranoia. Can you imagine, right? I mean, all of a sudden we all get a fr- like, who is it, right? That's not, that's not, the, uh, that's not the point uh, of the letter. Uh, the point of the letter is just is to know uh, that, that there will be those with, that call themselves um, Christians. There will be those that, uh, that, are, that are within and amongst you that will distort uh, the name of Jesus, that will distort the gospel. And it's vital that you can pick that out. Because if you just assume that because they're in my midst, they're telling the truth. If you just assume because they put a church name on the building or, or put Jesus' name uh, in, in their title or logo or whatever. Uh, if you just assume that there's truth and then you add on to it. This was another danger that he talked about. Add on to it. And they're also popular. They must be telling the truth. Then you will be deceived. Popularity and just the name, the branding of Jesus in the gospel does not mean truth. So we have to be uh, absolutely grounded in the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, and the way that we do that um, is, is by uh, reading and observing the eyewitness accounts uh, and also familiarizing ourselves uh, with the prophetic word concerning Jesus and his fulfillment. That both of these, Peter says, are vital. Uh, so that was kind of, that was chapter two. He talked a lot about uh, the characteristics of the false prophet. So we're going to move into chapter 3. And chapter 3 is, uh, this is a letter. Um, it is considered to uh, be an open letter. You'll notice um, in verse or in chapter 1, there's no direct address to a church. But because it is a letter, chapter 3 is going to serve as what for us? A conclusion, right? Chapter 3 is going to wrap it up. It's essentially chapter 3 is going to be saying, because all of this is true, here's kind of the final stand, the final point. So he's going to reiterate some things that he's already said, um, but this is his kind of his final plea. Uh, you guys were at the uh, basketball game last night. Uh, some of you who was there, there were apparently a record amount of you there, so that's really cool. And, uh, and I think I'm saying this right, but our men and women are both uh, Southland champions. Is that right? Yeah. So that's cool. Back to back. That's really cool. So the, uh, the tournament's coming up, and uh, so I would encourage you guys to skip class. And I didn't say, uh, take a trip, uh, but I don't think we actually even play till Friday, so maybe you don't have to skip class. Um, okay, so yeah, why, uh, that's why I was talking about that. So what's the most important? I was like, well, why did I talk about it? Uh, what's the most important part of the game? When do people get the most intense? Think about foo- uh, football. It's a little easier because they actually stop the game and say this is the most important time of the game, and it is the last two minutes, right? Basketball, you don't really, except for in basketball, you know it's the end of the game because they call like 1,200 timeouts. It's ridiculous. they got to stop that. Uh, but they, but they, they call time after time after time, right? They're trying to organize the attack because the last few moments, uh, though they're not any different than the uh, rest of the game, they seem more important because this is the end. When the end is coming, there's a sobriety to where you're at in the process, where you're at in the moment. Because all of a sudden now there's a view uh, of the end. In the first quarter, in the first half, you're not necessarily thinking about the end. Though you have desire to win the game, you're not thinking about the end. But when the end comes near and your eyes get fixed on uh, on the last moment of the game, all of a sudden every moment gets taken into account. All of a sudden, every moment now becomes very, very, very important. Coaches want to stop and go through every single play and orchestrate with their players 
uh, what needs to be done. And that's what he's going to use uh, here in chapter 3. He's going to call into view the last day uh, and give from that perspective, give us some urgency about today. So let's get into it. I'm going to pray and let's get into it. God, we just ask for you to speak. Um, we love that, uh, God, that you have given us your word. Um, but we know this. We know that if we just read this um, just with our minds, then we will we'll probably not go out of here uh, any better than when we came in. But we know that it's true that if by your spirit these words uh, come off the page and become life to us, then we can have an encounter with you. And if we have an encounter with you, then, God, we can leave transformed. And so that's just what I ask, that all across the room there would be transformation, that these words would become life, and that they would meet us exactly where we are, exactly where we're crying out to you, and that they would draw us uh, into you, that they would draw us deeper and deeper uh, into you. God, for those of us uh, maybe in this room that don't know you, God, I pray that this would be the day of encounter, that this would be the day that we meet uh, the God of the universe who created us specifically and uniquely uh, for a purpose and loves us and gave his son that we might know him and have life. So I just pray across the room that we would have an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's begin. He says, this is now the second letter, obviously referring uh, to First Peter, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he begins uh, his, his address by saying that I'm going to stir you up. You remember that language from the second chapter? I'm sorry, from the first chapter? He said, I'm going to uh, stir you up by way of reminder. He says this again. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, uh, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, we said that there's two really important elements for us to be uh, engulfed in, and that is the word of eyewitnesses, right? What did those who saw, what is their account? Now, when he uses this word in, in the text here, apostles, he's not just meaning in general followers of Jesus. He's talking about uh, the, the apostles uh, specifically as designated uh, by Jesus, okay? So he's talking about the 12 here, and uh, so, so this specific uh, word here is that you are to uh, remember uh, the commandment of the Lord and Savior uh, through the apostles. And the, begin, the first thing he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. So there again, we have both of those words, the eyewitnesses, the accounts of the apostles, and the word of the prophets. Well, that sounds great if you're getting the, li- the, the letter from Second Peter, right? Because he's a what? He, which one of those does he fall into? He's an apostle, and so great. The, the, the apostle Peter comes and hands me a letter. That's easy now for me to understand. Okay, this is a reminder from you directly. Well, what do we do with that? What do we... In, 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 we, we can't get that letter uh, directly. Peter's not going to hand us that letter. How do we 
uh, get reminded by the word of the apostles? How, do, how does that happen? How do we get reminded by the word of the prophets? How can we, how can we base our lives in, uh, in, our, in our foundation on those two things? Where do we find it? Yeah, right here. This is where we find it. The word of the apostles, the testimony of the apostles, their account provides the foundation uh, for the New Testament. The word of the prophets, those prophetic words about Jesus, all of the Old Testament, Paul would say in the book of Colossians, all of it is a shadow. It's to teach us about what is to come and that which is to come is Jesus. So the Old Testament is not different than the New. The Old Testament is painting a picture of what the New says happened. Does that make sense? So when we read the old, we get the, we get the picture book, right? God draws it out in pictures. He says, this is him who is coming. This is how it will work. And in the new, we look back and say, this is the fulfillment of what God said was coming. So how do we know either, how do we ground ourselves in either of those two things? Well, it's in the Bible. I'm afraid, uh, and I know I, look, I'd be just absolutely upfront and honest with you. I battle this in my own life as well, but I'm afraid that as days continue forward and as generations continue, that our zeal for the word of God is lacking. I think that we are very passionate about Jesus. I think that you, particularly your generation, you've heard me talk about this before, is very passionate uh, about social justice, which I know comes from the heart of the Father. That's a good thing. God is also passionate about justice. He is the right and good and perfect judge. But in our zeal for Jesus, what I'm afraid has happened is we've lost a zealousness, in a sense, for His Word. We've forgotten what it looks like to really ground ourselves here. Many of us in this room, if we were to be really honest, and I were to say, how do you study this? How do, how do you make this? There it goes. Keep it. Um, how do you make this applicable in your life? I'd get blank stares. What does it look like to read an ancient text and then apply it into your life? I don't know that many of you uh, know how to do that. It's not a slam. Again, I, I battle this uh, in, in my own life. To contend to understand the scriptures is a discipline. It's a hard thing. And I want to just go over a couple of ways that we do that. And, and one of the reasons I think we're, we're getting off a little bit is because all that we really seem to look at this book for is devotional content. So there's a couple of ways to, there's a couple of ways to uh, if you look at your time in the Word, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One, one way that we engage the Word is for a devotional. This is the, the most popular form of, I don't even know if you call it Bible study, but this is the most popular form uh, right now of getting in the Word. Basically, it looks like this. I'm going to spend about a half hour, um, and, and time is not as important, but, but generally the devotional it takes place in some short juncture throughout the day. The goal of that time, though, is that whatever I gain there is to fill me for the rest of the day, Right? Um, so what we do, and I, look, I, I was raised doing this. We do this with our kids. It's not a bad thing. But what we do uh, in my family, we would get around the breakfast table and we would read. Uh, many times we would read one passage, one verse. And based on the, then we would grab whatever the devotional book was for the day. And from that verse, we would try to uh, gain a uh, boost of momentum a word that would carry us throughout the day. 
Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that's negative at, at all. In fact, as I told you before, as I was growing up, that formed the base for me loving the Word. Um, and, and it's not a brag about me, but just in, in, in parenting, I just this is a boost to my my parents. I remember when we were in, I was in the seventh grade, and uh, my mom had been doing this with us for forever. Uh, since I can remember, we'd, every morning, this is what we would do. We'd get in the Word together. And in seventh grade, my parents uh, told us that we were moving. Well, we lived uh, in Midland, Texas, is West Texas. We lived there um, all of what I could remember. And uh, we had deep friendships there, loved the people there. And it told us we're moving to Dallas, right? So a kid from Midland, first of all, to th- even think about Dallas was a, I couldn't even get my head around that. It was a devastating blow to a uh, emotionally charged teenager, right? I mean, you can just say, ah, right? My sister and I both flipped out. I don't know that my sister spoke to my parents for a few days. Anyway, it was like this drama, right? But uh, they, 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 hadn't, they left one night and went, uh, we had a babysitter or whatever. They came home and they, I, I can't even tell you why I'd done this. All I knew to do was that in my turmoil, they came home and I was just reading the Bible. Uh, I, they, I, can't, I was in the living room and I was just reading the Bible. And all I knew to do, because of the way I'd been raised, all I knew to do was when there was a storm, I knew that there was something in here that could calm that. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to study the Bible. I didn't know. All I knew was there's something in here that brings life and peace and hope. And whatever I'm going through, that's what happens. So, so devotional reading is not a negative thing. It, it provides the basis for our clinging to the word in our day-to-day life. You understand? So I think it's necessary and it's good that we take small chunks of Scripture and we meditate on them in such a way that we go, okay, now how, am I, how is this going to apply immediately and right now? So that's not a bad thing. The problem is I think that, that for many of us that has become the basis for all of our time in the Word. That's all we do. How many of you remember four days ago what you read? Maybe some. How many of you remember two weeks ago what you read on a Tuesday. See, that's, that's the problem. Is that, again, devotional content isn't bad, but unless that devotional content just strikes you right in the middle of a circumstance that you're in, you're processing of it to fruition, meaning you're processing of it to where it bears fruit continually in your life is relatively low. Many times we don't even remember what we, what we studied. We don't, we don't remember what we've read. We just remember the little, that we just get an emotional, in a sense, an emotional charge from the reading, and that's it. The problem with that is that that, doesn't, that never grounds us in right and good doctrine. That doesn't, that doesn't ground us in the context in which the Scriptures take place. One of the most fascinating things that has ever happened to me, and it was just a gift of God. I got an opportunity to go to Israel. And for the first time ever, I was forced to, because I was there, I was forced to read this book through a Hebrew lens as best as I could. But I began to see the context of the story come alive. For the first time, I began to think of Jesus as a Jewish rabbi. And not a, not a white blonde guy, right? For the first time, I got, I got the context. Of the, I was forced to dive into the context of the scriptures. And I can tell you, it has made the Bible come alive for me. In two weeks, I'm going to teach you about Passover. 
Many of us don't even know that communion comes from Passover because we don't know the context of the scriptures. And what I'm saying is, is we, if we only engage in devotional content, then we never gain the context. And if we never gain the context, then we don't know the whole story. And if we don't know the whole story, not that what you're getting is bad, but you're missing so much, right? The other thing that it does when we only engage in devotional content is it, I think it creates a, and you guys, if you've been around me long, you've heard me talk about this. I think it creates a desire for a fast food God. If I go to, I've got to go to the vending machine of my Bible and I've got a better hope that in one passage I can churn out a scripture that's going to change my day and keep me going for the rest of the day. And I end up relating that now back to God. There's, there's nothing that's, that requires me, if all I do is devotion, there's nothing that requires me to battle and contend for understanding. There's nothing that keeps me here for days and weeks in order to understand. All I've done is gone, okay, uh, but false prophets always uh, you know, arose among the people, and I've stopped there. I haven't read context. I haven't uh, gotten into the passage for long term, and so I don't know the fullness uh, of what it means. I don't have to battle and wrestle for what does this mean? What is being said here? How does it connect with other passages? passages in the scripture. And if I don't do that, then I pray prayers like this. God, where do you want me to go to work? God, what do you want me to do with my life? And if God doesn't like open the sky and tell you at that moment, then God's not speaking and I don't know how to hear him. I can tell you how many times I've heard that rhetoric that I, I, I prayed, I asked God, he's not doing it or not, not to my knowledge, and so we step back. And I think a lot of this comes from our expectation that we're just going to pull up to the uh, McDonald's of our devotional or pull up to the McDonald's of our prayer life and go, God, do this, and I'm going to pull around the front. And if you haven't done it, by the time I pull around, I'm leaving. Right? What happened to, the, what happened to our understanding of the prophet that would cry out for years for one thing? They would contend on behalf of the people for, of Israel for one thing. What happened to the Daniels? What happened to the Davids, right? What happened, what happened to these men that understood that there's a contention that I have to have for a long period of time, and I'm willing to press God, even though I don't understand, I'm willing to press Him and stay in this spot until I do have understanding. And we don't study the Bible that way, nor do we approach God that way, and I think one of the uh, that we're missing a huge, huge piece of our relationship with the Lord and certainly of our understanding of the Scriptures. So let me just encourage you to begin to... Uh, don't stop having devotional time. It creates right focus and it's good. It's healthy. I'm not saying it's bad. But if that's all that exists in your life, I would encourage you to, to just... And, and look, just pick a book of the Bible and study it. Right? Just pick one. And, and I know that sounds like that's not very spirit-led. Well, it's spirit-led because the spirit wrote this book. I'm not being sarcastic about being spirit-led, but come on. Uh, read the Bible. So pick a, pick a book. Uh, pick a book and just go, I'm going to commit to studying. If you've never done this before, pick a short one. Don't pick Romans. Okay? This Roman, I'm, look, it's hard. I'm telling you, Romans is hard. Pick a short one. Pick Second Peter. We've been talking about it. All right? Let me, let me give you just a couple of resources that might help. Just, just real practically. Otis and Ethel, are you guys in here? Yeah. They do a phenomenal job. You, go, you probably don't even know about it, but they do a phenomenal job of maintaining our library here at the church. I know you're going, what's a library, right? We, it's a place where there's books, and they're arranged in order, and you take one out and you read it. It's paper, much like this. Um, 
right? They, they maintain a phenomenal library. So many great resources, commentaries, and helpful um, study tools in the library. They would love to, love to walk you through how to get around in that library and how to find resources. Um, it's downstairs in the gym. There's a, um, a room off of the gym. If you are interested in that, just Otis and Ethel, hey, just go talk to them. They can tell you about when that's open. Here's another helpful thing. Now, this costs money, so it's not for all of you. Uh, it, it, just, it just does. I, and I would recommend it. It's great. It's expansive. Uh, but if you're interested, Logos, uh, ha, it's called Logos Bible Study Software. It, it's, it's, I don't know, $300 or something. Uh, it lasts a lifetime, but it's quite expensive. So, but it's a great, it's a great Bible study. But here's the one I would tell you to go. Here's the one I would tell you to use. Ready? You listen to me? Blueletterbible.org. Okay, it's free. Uh, it's it's free. It's online. It'll it'll give you access to commentaries. It'll give you access to the language of the text. You can go back and look at Strong's numbers and the language of the text. It's a phenomenal help. We use that heavily in discipleship school. Here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. Listen, don't miss it. Don't miss it. All I'm saying is um, we, we really need for you and your generation to commit to a grounding in the things that Peter is talking about. Because what he's going to say is, is, uh, is one of these mo- disturbing statements in a moment. Because he says, in the last days, in these last days, there will be scoffers. We're talking about the word of the false prophet, the one that will come against this word. If you don't contend to understand the scriptures, if you don't contend to get in this book and understand it, listen to me, uh, you will be deceived. Because what you'll rely on, you'll rely on, well, that sounds good. That sounds right. I, they're using the name of Jesus. They're, they're, doing, they're saying this, this, and this. And that sounds accurate. And, so, and they're popular. And I'm going to believe them. And it's the very thing that Peter said, don't go there. Test everything. Know the scriptures. Know what the prophets have said. Because what, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to, send, uh, he wants to send those that will twist and distort who Jesus is. Jesus is this great man, but he's not really the Messiah. Jesus did miracles, but he didn't really fulfill the prophetic word. And if you're not grounded in the prophetic word, then when those uh, things come against your theology, when you're not grounded in the scriptures, those things come against your theology, you will be deceived. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that's all about your, your uh, ability to intellectually understand and comprehend everything in this Bible, and that's the way you won't be deceived. I'm not saying that. But how foolish would we be? to not do everything we can to gain a foothold in understanding of the scriptures? When they provide for us the foundation for for knowing God, so many people go. I don't know how to. I don't know how to hear this. How to hear the Spirit of God? I know I'm commanded to throughout the Scriptures. One of the best ways to begin practicing hearing God is to read this Word. Let Him speak to you in something He's already written down. We've got to get into the Word and get into it and contend for understanding. Study a book along with your devotional content. And be willing for it to take a, a month or a year to study it. Don't go, if I don't finish Second Peter in a week, then I've failed. Take every possible detour you can. You will gain a fuller understanding of what's written in the Scriptures. And I have spent all of my time on that point. Uh-oh. <laughs> Said told you. All right, here we go. We're going to move. You ready? We're going to do it. There will be scoffers, but we will do it. (laughs) All right, here we go. 
He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing for their own sinful desires. We talked about that last week. Following after their, their flesh, their own sinful desires will be what leads their way. And listen to what they're going to say. Verse 4, this is important. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? They'll say, for ever since the, the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay? So that's going to be their statement. You tell me about this Jesus, right? You tell, me about, you tell me about this Messiah that came and died and was resurrected, and you tell me that he's coming again. And you tell me that he's coming again for judgment. You tell me that he's coming again to rule the nations and to make all things right. But where is he? They've been saying this from the beginning. Where is your Messiah? Where is your one? And here's what they'll say. He, he, makes, this, he makes this point. The first thing is, where is he? And then they're going to say, for all things from the beginning of creation are continuing forward until now, and nothing has changed. Right? Doesn't that sound like you kind of go, oh, is he right? Where is he? But listen to what Peter says. He says, for they deliberately overlook this. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of, uh, of these, the world that then existed, right, was deluged with water and perished. What's he talking about? He's talking about the flood. How many brought the same word to Noah? Where is he? Where's this rain? Why are you building the boat? What's going on, right? They stood in their own sinful desire in that day with no, no awareness of a judgment and an end to come. And what Peter says is they overlook this one fact, that this is the way that it was. God said he was going to bring judgment and what happened. The word was deluged, uh, sorry, the world was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. So he says that we're, we're living in, the, uh, in, a, in a sense, in a parenthesis, in the same way that they were. There was a, there was a day where those, they had an option to serve God, to love God. They turned their back on him and God said, I'm bringing judgment and it will occur on this day. God brought perfect and righteous judgment. The godly were saved. The ungodly uh, perished. And what Peter says is they overlooked this fact. And so what they don't know is that in the same way, this world stands waiting for the judgment that is to come. Except for this time, God said it would never happen again by fire, uh, by water. Except for this time, judgment is coming in fire. And that sounds intense. It makes us go, whew, right? But look, listen to me. If you don't have, if you don't have a perspective on an end... If you don't have, if you don't have a, a realization that this day is, we are, we are in the last days, days which are passing away, and that there will be an end, then you won't hold uh, today of high value. Because it's just another day of many days that will continue. But friends, it's not that way. A day is coming where, where this, as we know it, this will end and Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will bring the fire of judgment. And Peter will say this later on in the passage. I've got to skip around because I've got to finish. 
But he's going to say, and all things will be known for what they are. Essentially, look, the authenticity of everything will be known when he comes again. The thoughts and the tensions of the heart will be exposed before him. The heart of kings, the intention of nations, everything will be laid bare before him. Everything will be exposed for what it really is on that day. And it's vital that for us, we stay grounded in the fact that Jesus is coming again. Are you with me? It's easy for us to get swept away in that argument. Yeah, he died 2,000 years ago. Maybe he's not coming again. Maybe it's all just feel-good stories. But you overlook this one fact that he said he would do it. He's already done it. And he's going to do it again. So, uh, again, I've got to move quickly here. Let's read. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." All will be known for what it is. So for us, when we stand in the midst of that pressure that says, where, where is he? Where is he? You said, your beloved, you said he was coming again. Where is he? When we return, we, we, we obviously can stand against that scripturally. We can stand against that. Uh, but when we go back into the quiet places of our lives, how do we reconcile what we perceive to be slowness in our heart. Right? You ever had that thought? Where is he? Like, seriously, where is he? It has been 2,000. Where is he? This word from Peter, I think, is, is such uh, a, a right and good perspective. He says, but don't miss this. And he's talking specifically to you. Don't miss this. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. First, he's not constricted by what we see as time. That's an earth measurement. He's perfect in time, but not bound by it. You with me? And then he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what we gain from this is we go, we, we look into today and we recognize that regardless of our understanding, when God may come, when Jesus is going to come, when this, when this day will end, if we're alive today and he hasn't come yet, we have to find our rest in that, in that, uh, in that he is allowing today, giving today as a day of repentance. You with me? And what that does is if it creates some urgency and it creates some sobriety to the importance of today if we realize that I don't, I don't know about time. I, you know, for the Lord, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. I don't get that. I can't, I'm not going to get that. Jesus even said it's not for you to know the hour, but he is coming. He's coming like a thief. But let me tell you this, that every day that you're alive and breathing and every day that he has not returned is a day that the Lord has counted and given for repentance. 
It's a day that the Lord has given that some might turn to him, that some would know him because his heart is for all to know him. So count today and cherish today because a day, today is a day of repentance. And we've got, to, we've got to build our life there. That if my days on the earth expire, then I count myself blessed uh, before he comes and I count myself blessed because I got to live a lifetime in days of repentance. And if he comes tomorrow, great, it's in his perfect timing, but that better mean I'm, I'm uh, adamant about what's happening today, that today is about repentance. And not tomorrow and not the next day, but I'm living and breathing now. It's important for me to be present now because today is a day of repentance. Today is a day. If, look, and, and seriously, if, you, if you're in the room and you're going, man, I don't know him. You think about the reality of what that means according to this passage. That today is a day that is built for you to know Him. Today is a day, if, you, if you're sitting in the room and you don't know Jesus, you've never given your life to Him, you don't know what life is, you're still living for yourself and you've never been filled up with the Spirit of God, you've never been connected with God relationally, you've never been forgiven of your sin, then today, we're alive on the earth today as an opportunity for you to come and to know Him. Today is not just a day of repentance in general, but it's a day that you might know Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple notes because I've got to finish. Um, he says that all works will be exposed. I want you to go and maybe in your free time, read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It talks about the judgment of the believer. That all works will be exposed. The heart, the intention of everything will be exposed He's going to tell us in his final words in verse 14, he's going to tell us that Paul is hard to read, and he is. <laughs> Nobody? Okay. He really, he says, uh, <laughs> he said, uh, Paul wrote about this. Look at verse uh, 16. As he does in all his letters when he speaks of them uh, in, uh, in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Just a quick note on that. I feel like Paul is used more than any other writer to twist and distort the gospel. That Paul writes about some hard things. And I think a lot of times the the twisting and distortion come not because his writings are are wrong, but because we take them and go, okay, I'm going to make whatever I want out of them. They're used a, a lot as that kind of ammunition. And then he, uh, and that's why I say don't start in Romans, but force yourselves to study. Don't just read and take things at face value, especially Paul. Don't read and take it face value. Grind in them until you uh, feel like you understand holistically what's being written. And then he closes. Let's close together. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And God, that is our prayer. I just ask for each one in this room that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to you be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.